Bienvenidos. Welcome to episode one of Your Healing Nature, a podcast about how Black, Indigenous people of color are intentionally reclaiming the outdoors and beyond as spaces of healing individual and collective trauma. I'm your host, Brenda Besa, and in this inaugural episode, I have the honor of interviewing Montserrat Alvarez Matejuala. Montserrat is an outdoor research-sponsored athlete, co-founder of Brown Girls Climb, outdoor educator, community activist, danzante, and poet. We discuss her root story, rock climbing as a healing practice, her epic summit to Ixasiwa, and all things familia y comunidad. Here's our conversation. Enjoy. feeling so grateful to be in conversation with Montserrat Alvarez Matejuala. Montserrat was born in Ventura, California, but grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, where she fell in love with community organizing and the outdoors. Montserrat is a proud daughter of a single undocumented mom who nurtured her passion for social justice at a young age. Her mom raised her to be proud of who she is and where she comes from as a brown mujer. Montserrat is an outdoor educator, community organizer, climber, and danzante currently based in Boulder, Colorado. In 2016, she was part of the national founding team of Brown Girls Climb, LLC, a woman of color-led business focused on centering the leadership of women of color climbers in the outdoors. Montserrat began her career while in college, where she worked as an outdoor trip leader. Over the last eight years, she has created paths for other people of color in the outdoor industry, through various organizations like Latino Outdoors, Brown Girls Climb, and Women's Wilderness. She is a sponsored athlete with outdoor research and part-time instructor at Women's Wilderness. Montserrat centers her work around connecting to land, ancestry, and Black Indigenous people of color stories of resilience in the outdoors and beyond. Bienvenida, Montserrat. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. I'm so glad that you were able to make the time. And I know that you have graciously agreed to open the space by starting with one of your poems. So I'm going to hand it over to you. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm feeling kind of nervous. I don't typically read my poetry. Um, this is a poem. Oh, you are. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this is a poem that I wrote on... Uh, I honestly don't know. It's not dated. Um, sometime in 2016, 2017. Um, just my feelings about being a brown girl. <laughs> so it's titled um, For My Brown Girls from the Hood. This is for my brown girls from the hood. The ones who stand between two worlds, who learn to take pride in where they're from, never wanting to just look beyond these walls, but rather build within and resist, rebuild the hoods they left us in. This is for my bookworms who like me found solace in her books, lost in worlds that seemed so distant, mastering words on the low, shamed for her diction, my tongue twisted in code switch, never wanting to sound too ghetto or too white. This is for my chinguanas who learned everything about survival from their people, yet tried so hard to hide their roots. My brown girl, be proud of where you come from. 
resilience uprooted you into a powerful force. This is for my caretakers and love givers who learned and unlearned love, bearing the scars of our abuelitas and mothers, words left unsaid, cycles begging to be dismantled. This is for my brown girls from the hood who worked their way into spaces that were never created for them, who are loud and intense, who found their voice after years of being told that they didn't matter, whose passion means survival. This is for my brown girls from the hood who are just trying to free the people. I absolutely love that poem. And even as I sit here, my heart just, it, it beats so fast because <laughs> I, when I first heard this poem and I saw it, you know, it was your words alongside the animation and mm-hmm. it is just powerful on its own. But when you see the animation as well, it's just, I couldn't help but tear up. And I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that as unique as your story is, I think that there are so many elements of, of your story that resonate with so many of us, I think, especially as women of color. So this poem is so deeply rooted in your own story of straddling two worlds, of having to climb literal and figurative walls in your life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also that deep sense of pride in your family lineage and specifically the women in your family. Mm-hmm. And you say in one of your stanzas, this is for my chingonas who learned everything about survival from their people, yet tried so hard to hide their roots. And so I'd like to start by asking you, what is your root story? I had a really hard time, you know, thinking back to um, what is like that pivotal moment that defined who I am. Um, I think I had a really hard time um, thinking of like just one thing and then it hit me that it literally goes back to the root to the raices of where I come from and that is my root story story starts with being the daughter of Marta and Adrian um, and you know I, I, I really believe that we are like a beautiful manifestation of like this forever love that exists between our parents who choose to bring us into this world. And my mom used to tell me that um, we're all, before we enter like this realm, we're all like little spirits, like little angels. And we, we pick our parents. And um, I think a lot about what it meant for me to be their daughter. Um, And that my root story has to do everything with their story and their story of their parents and their parents before them. And I can honestly say that I I know that I am how I am today in this day because of them. Um, And that my story begins with my parents and my grandparents, my great grandparents, my great, great grandparents and so on. How does that root story help you reconnect to the root of what is foundational in your work as not only a rock climber, a danzante, an educator, but I know that you're also at the forefront of doing the justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion work. And so I I wonder how that informs the way that you approach that work. Yeah. um, I mean, I think that when when you grow up, um, like you said, right, like our stories are individual 
Um, but yeah, we can find um, like common ground, common experiences. And so I know, I know this to be true because I talked to my friends who also grew up, you know, as children of immigrants, children of undocumented immigrants. Um, you know, my, my path was very much defined by their lived experiences. Um, I, you know, got into organizing and um, just social justice work because of my mom. Um, you know, as a seven-year-old kid, like um, having to understand a lot about the world through the lens of, of my father being incarcerated, of my mother being a single mom and legal statuses and not quite understanding what it meant, why my parents couldn't legally work or legally drive, um, things like that. And I think for me, um, just thinking back to, um, for example, um, at the age of 11, having a conversation with my mom um, after reading this book called um, Esperanza Rising. And I remember this book so vividly. I gifted it to my brother um, because that was the book that I read that my mom um, talked to me about her being undocumented after I read that book. Um, and, and, and it just, that shaped and molded, you know, how I interacted with the world because I was always hypervigilant about the police and ICE activities. And, um, and on top of just, you know, I think that it, it, um, and I, and I've talked about this a lot with my friends, it, it makes you grow up in, in, in like a, at an expedited pro like process, not like a, oh, you're so mature. Like, you know, it's like, no, like you took on responsibilities that the adults in your life um, exposed you to, not because they had a choice, but because of the conditions around you. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, everything that my parents are is what made me who I am. And I know we're going to talk about it a little bit later, but, you know, even with the parent that I didn't grow up with, my dad, um, there are still things that he gifted me that were just so beautiful, you know, um, his love for books, like uh, he would read books a lot. And I didn't know that, but my mom would share those things with me. Um, and when I found out he was a rock climber, like that is just something that to me was, um, it was beautiful because it was something else that I could share with my dad, with someone that I did not grow up around um, that was absent from my life. Um, and I could say, well, I'm a rock climber, like my dad, you know, um, and it's just like, I think a lot about the different, um, the confluence of who I am. And it's just like, it's a lot of what my parents were and are to this day. Yeah. I, I definitely resonate with you on that fear that you have as a child, when you grow up, knowing that your parents are undocumented. I remember like one of my earliest memories of my mother going to the grocery store, but being left behind in the house with a friend of the family and me looking for my mother and him saying jokingly, Se la llevo la migra. and I was just crying, but 
you know, as I reflect now as an adult and I reflect on that, I'm like, wow, to be four years old and to have at least that recognition of la migra, that it's such like, um, you know, a presence in your life and a reality and to know that your parents are unsafe. But then that correlation of like the way that we experience also the outside, right? Outside of our homes, because as Black, Indigenous people of color, I think we have such diverse histories and stories and things that we grapple with at such an early age. So yeah, I completely agree with you on that. It does expedite the process of having to grow up faster. Yeah, I saw something recently that um, one of my best friends, Janelle, sent to me was like, um, that we needed to stop romanticizing, like, the idea that like, that it's okay for kids to be mature at a young age and like recognize that the reason they've had to mature is because of real life trauma and like real life, like things that they've had to carry. And yeah, like I, I like cried when she sent that to me um, because I feel like for a long time, everyone around me was like, you're so mature for your age. Like you're so mature for your age. And I've had to like, you know, now as I'm get, like almost about to turn 30, I'm like, oh yeah, like that was because I was forced to become an adult because I needed to care for my family and my loved ones and co-raise my little brother. And I'm like, yeah, that's why I was so quote unquote mature for my age. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, let's, let's like stop romanticizing that and being like, wow, like you're, you're so responsible. Like you're so mature for your age. And I'm like, let, let kids be kids, you know? Yeah, it, right. Precisely because it's, it doesn't allow you to be a child because you're worried about things that adults should be worried about. But then it begs the question of, you know, we grow up, we become adults, and then there's all this inner child work that has to be done to then resolve all of these things that you've gone through as a child, right? Trauma. Um, I think I told you last time that I've been taking, actually right before this, we just ended our last class on intergenerational trauma under Rabbi Dr. Tirza Firestone. And she was talking about how our, our wounds, ancestral wounds or our wounds turn into wisdom and our trauma turns into triumph. But to get to that point is so much work. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it goes back to exactly what you said. Like a lot of that trauma, you know, obviously it goes into your adulthood and it turns into you having to do a lot of work to heal that inner child, to feed that inner child, to be allowed to be a child, Um, you know, like basic things like, um, yeah, like having, having the ability to have choices, um, you know, the freedom to just, to treat yourself to certain things. Like I talk about this a lot with my best friend Janelle and with my partner Alonso, like, you know, I, we, we talk a lot about what it, what it was like to be like the first, the first generation, like the oldest, like, uh, you know, dealing with other siblings, like generational differences, um, growing up in working class homes. Like, I mean, all those things, like there's, there's a lot there. And, and, uh, you know, as beautiful as, as I hear these words, um, that you're sharing, I think as well, like there's been conversations around just, you know, I, I want to stop being called like strong and resilient. Like I want, I want to like be like, I, I want to live a good life and not just be like 
resilient and strong and like, you know, enduring things. It's, it's like, I want to be able to live my life to the fullest. And a lot of that does go back to feeding that inner child, because that's where a lot of our early traumas and wounds start is in our childhood. Um, and so how do we take care of that, that inner child that has been so hurt, you know, by the world and our own families? And, and how do we do that work without um, vilifying our parents or blaming them? Because they're also like a product of the world around them. And and then we get into this whole conversation about breaking generational trauma. And it's like, man, like, <laughs> I just, I just want to be able to get like a solid eight hours of sleep sometimes, you know? <laughs> As I listened to Montserrat, it's taking me back to a conversation we had in the weeks leading up to this episode. It was around the concept of guilt. In 2018, the North Face featured Montserrat's poem in a beautiful animated version as part of the Walls Are Meant for Climbing campaign, which celebrates leaders around the globe who are pushing for access and inclusion in climbing. And you can find that video in their show notes. In that version, Montserrat writes, what did I do to deserve this? I'm so privileged. I know this doesn't translate to my community. As she refers to the privilege of being able to rock climb. That resonated with me because at an early age, we as children of undocumented immigrants are given the adult responsibilities of interpreting for our parents, teaching our siblings how to speak English, taking care of immediate and extended family and so forth. So early on, we internalize that sense of duty to the family collective. And with that comes a sense of guilt sometimes as a result of the privilege that comes with getting to do what we love or practicing self-care like getting eight hours of sleep or having opportunities that our parents simply never had. So I asked Monserrat to expand on these complex themes that run throughout our lives. No, totally. And actually that also reminded me that, so this poem that I read is like literally from my notebook, like the first draft that I ever wrote. Um, and I remember that I actually have a longer version, which is what I read for that, um, that I read for the North Face video. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I, and I know you'll, you'll link that in, in the podcast, but, um, yeah, going back to your question, I mean, I think that that's something that I often, again, like my go-to people, like we just talk about that. Like, how does it feel to be able to rest? How does it feel to be able to go to therapy? Like, how does it feel to be able to go on vacation, to turn down jobs, to negotiate pay, you know, like man, like I had this whole conversation with my best friend around like just the trauma that I feel around money. Like, and that's like something that we don't even touch the surface on. It's like, yes, capitalism, but also like when you add a layer of being like working class, like first generation, like first professional, first person to graduate from high school, college in your family have like a quote unquote like professional job you know um I think that I've internalized a lot you know around being able to ask for fair compensation and jobs to negotiate certain terms of of my employment when I know that my mom works in a kitchen with a Trump supporter who's an owner who's the owner of the restaurant who says derogatory things to my mom all the time 
but she has no choice. Like she has no choice. Like that is someone who is employing her, who pays her relatively okay. Um, and so then I start feeling this guilt, right? This guilt around having more freedom, having more choice, having more mobility. Um, and how do we hold like multiple truths around the idea that this is like, these are the things that my mom wished for me. And so I'm getting them. Like I shouldn't not, not, you know, take advantage of them. Um, and at the same time, like this just deep, like not even guilt, but I think more anger, like anger that this isn't something that my mom is able to have. Um, and, and then, yeah, like feeling guilty about, you know, treating myself to a massage or, um, going on vacation, um, you know, things like that or buying myself something new, like brand new that I'm like, you know, um, there's, yeah, there's just been a lot of, I think like those are things that we don't really talk about. At least I don't feel like that's something that my community talks a lot about. Um, and then you start getting into like, you know, economic knowledge and like literacy and, and how we don't have access to those things as a community. Um, but there's all this pressure to like reach the American dream, but also there's like a lot of guilt around having more than what our parents had. Um, and, you know, I'm constantly playing this game where like when I'm thinking, making a decision about am I going to buy something? I'm like, oh, like that's like groceries for the week or that's just, you know, that's a uh, X, Y, and Z thing. Like I, I do this thing where I compare it and I was talking to my best friend about it and she was like, yeah, that's like, a very much like a trauma response and I'm like cool 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 and she's just like yeah like that's she's like we're just you know we're just some poor kids like we we grew up poor like working class kids like that that's a trauma response where we're having to justify expending money and especially spending money when you feel like you're spending it on quote unquote nothing right like when your parents would be like and it's like yo, I'm trying to go to therapy, <laughs> you know, like, and, it, and it's like this idea that they're like, not worth, um, yep. it's not worth your money, right? Like, you're just throwing your money away. And when you're doing things to like, take care of yourself. <laughs> as Monserrat and I continue to discuss our shared lived experiences as first-generation college students and first-generation professionals, we delve deeper into her relationship with her father. You've already mentioned that rock climbing has been something that's connected you. You've maybe not had such a close relationship with your father, but once you found out that he was an escalador, a rock climber, and that you too had that passion and that love for rock climbing, did you find that out before you started rock climbing or how did that come about? And then what type of healing has rock climbing itself brought to you? So I found out that my dad um, was a rock climber after I started climbing. So um, I didn't know that. And I remember my mom one time just kind of saying it in passing. And I was like, what? And I'm like, you never told me. Um, and I was super excited. And then I went out to camp um, in like La Falda, the skirts of Iztaccíhuac. Um, a few years back and my uncle who was um, my mom's only brother but he was really good friends with my dad um, 
he took me to this um place called Las Grapas and he was just like oh yeah like your dad and I will come and climb here and I was like what like my dad was like legitimately like a climber and I remember um after I started talking to my dad again I went to my grandmother's house his mom and I found a picture of my dad backpacking and I sent it to my mom and she was like oh yeah that's when he was in Yucatan and I was just like what and I'm like what like how come no one told me any of these things about my family and then I'm at my other grandma's house my mom's mom and there's like photos of them like camping and there's photos of my aunties like they're all like camping and like what like how come how come no one talks like I think like I thought it was really I thought it was like not normal but at that point um I was already doing outdoor education um, work and so I was like this is awesome like it's it's not just like a weird thing that I'm doing kind of right like it's still like the multiple truths thing but it's it was like a, oh okay like my family does these things together and then yeah like my first time going camping ever it was in Mexico with my family when I was five years old so um yeah I would say that it it was something really beautiful um because it's something that I got to share with my dad As Montserrat's family history continues to unfold, we transition to discussing her summit of Ixtasiwat and the special role this mountain plays in her family history. But first, let me provide you with some geographic orientation. Ixtasiwat is Mexico's third highest peak after Pico de Orizaba and Popocatepel. It's located in the Ixtapopo National Park in the state of Puebla. The summit itself stands at 17,159 feet in elevation, and she is famously known as La Mujer Dormida, because aerial views of the mountain range reveal the figure of a sleeping woman. You will hear Montserrat reference the legend of Ixtasiwat and Popocatepel. We have included the novel romance story in the show notes in case you're curious. Montserrat begins the story of her summit by taking us back to the first day she laid eyes on Ixtasiwat. Yeah, I'll try to tell the story as best as I can. There's a lot that happened. Um, so yeah, like I said, my first camping trip ever um was in Mexico with my family and I my uncle used to have this um like kind of like a loading truck a like a like just like a troque like a box truck type of thing and the family just like all piled up in the back of the truck and I remember him pulling off on the side of the road because he wanted just he wanted to show us Itasiwat and we all got out of the truck and I remember just being like Oh my God. Cause it was, it was the biggest mountain I had ever seen at five years old. And, um, that was the time that I heard the, the story for the first time of Istasiwat and Popocatepetl. Um, and I, like, I can legitimately say, like, I became fascinated with that mountain and, um, you know, Popo and Istasiwat come up a lot in a lot of like, uh, Chicano culture, like artwork, like you all see the photo of like, the man carrying the woman and like the two mountains in the back, you know? And I was like, Oh, that's cool. Like that's, that's the story that my, that my family told me about. Okay. Um, and like they're real life mountains, you know? Um, and I want to say back in, let's see, I graduated from college in 2014. So back in like 2013, um, I went to Mexico 
Um, and uh, I asked my uncle to take us there. And so we just camped at the skirt of Isasiwat. Um, and it was really beautiful. It was raining. We didn't really continue on much further than like camping at the base. We had um, my uh, niece with us. And so, yeah, it was just, we weren't, it was just beautiful to be out there. And I remember asking my uncle a lot of questions about that area um, and really wanting to go back. You know, I was like fascinated with like, I really want to go up that mountain. Um, and fast forward to 2014, I graduated. I spent like four or five months traveling around between like Mexico and Guatemala. Um, and then um, fast forward again to 2018. Um, my best friend, um, Ariana, um, she and I had talked about going to Mexico to go do that, to go do that peak. And, um, that was the whole reason, not the whole reason, obviously I was there to see my family, but that was like one of the main reasons I was there, um, was to go up, um, Iztaccíhuatl. And during the period of me going to Mexico after college and traveling around, um, I took that opportunity to sort of reconnect back to my dad um, and just, you know, try to be around him. Um, and I just, I share that to say that um, I truly believe that you can love someone um, and love them from a distance and not want them in your life. And um, ultimately that's my relationship with my dad in, in, in a sentence. Um, and I think it was really painful, you know, as an adult who had been doing a lot of work to heal, um, a lot of trauma that was honestly caused, um, you know, through, through his experiences in life. Um, and it, we didn't, you know, I, I think to this day, we don't have like the best relationship, mostly because it doesn't look like what he wants it to look like. Um, and I have boundaries and, um, you know, when I went back um, in 2018, I, I saw my sisters, um, I have two half sisters um, and their mom and my dad um, wasn't able to make it to come to come see us. We went up to um, Totihuacan and we're up at the pyramids and stuff. And um, anyways, uh, they had um, offered to let me and Ari borrow a car um, so that we could get to, to the base of Iztaccíhuatl. Um, and my dad's wife kept insisting that they needed to find us a guide and that they wanted us to go up with the guide and, and that we needed to go with the group and that we couldn't go by ourselves. And yeah, and pretty much up until like the two days before they were, were like, yeah, we can't let you borrow the car. Um, we don't think you should go alone. Um, and so me and Ari scrambled and had to get a car reservation. Um, and we got my, we got my cousin, um, to put the reservation under his name and drive us, put his driver's license down. I threw my credit card. Actually, I think I only had my debit card with me. I like had not planned to, to like rent a car so I don't think I had my credit card and we had to put like the credit card in my mom's name we're like calling her in the U.S. and getting her information and putting down the reservation it was it was a lot um and this is all while we're picking up the car in the same parking lot where we're doing all the grocery shopping for the expedition and it was like a lot to handle um but it was also beautiful right because like here's one parent doing this thing and then there's another parent who's like 
here's my credit card. Like I've never asked my mom for money and, um, you know, obviously I paid her back, but it was like this weird thing to ask my mom to, you know, to give me her credit card information. Um, and, and, and to like rely on her in that way, you know, and, and, and to ask her to, to trust me to use her credit card. Like, I don't know, there's like a lot of things that I felt around that. And, and then, um, to have my, my cousin, Ivan, to just be willing to come and to drive. And my abuelita was with us the whole time we were getting the car situation. And she was like taking a nap in the car while we were getting things like loaded up and in the grocery store, she was so tired, but she just wanted to be there with us like the whole way while we were getting ready. Um, and yeah, like we finally got back like super late that night and I was just so exhausted from running around. Um, and Ari and I were staying in the same room at my grandma's house. And I think we both were just feeling like we got a lot thrown at us um, and it was a lot to navigate. And and then like ultimately, right, like it wasn't until the next day we met up with some friends. We all loaded up in the car. I mean, we had it was like five of us in like a mini like economic size compact car with like a bunch of gear, like stuff strapped to the to like the ceiling and like stuff stuffed like in the back part of like the windowsill and like the trunk was just like stuffed to the max. Um, and we got into um, a Mecca Mecca and we went to have um, lunch there. And I was just like, man, I can't believe it. Like we're here, like we're in, like, I remember just like sighing so deeply, like as soon as we started driving away from the city um, and just, I'm sitting in the front with my cousin and and, and I'm directing him where we're going. And I'm just like, this is it, like, we're doing it. And, you know, I think there's always, obviously, as, um, as a mountaineer, like, you always have the understanding that if we the weather doesn't permit it, you should turn around. Um, but regardless of that, I was just like, it's happening, like, it's happening. And, and, you know, unless weather, of course, but, I, but in my mind, I'm like, it's happening, it's happening. Um, and so I remember when we got to Meka Meka, I just, I was so relieved. And then it was like every step of the way, I felt more and more relief um, in my body. And I remember um, that evening we are like, yeah, like afternoon, early afternoon, we set up the camp um, and we were getting ready to start our dinner and just like loading up with a bunch of carbs and we're like dancing and stuff and watching the sunset we had just done like a little day hike. Um, and I was like, okay, like this is really happening. Like we're going to bed at like six o'clock and we're getting up at 2 a.m. Like it is happening, happening. Um, and I was super thankful because my cousin was there. Like one of our friends, Daphne was there and it just, yeah. And I think at the end of the day, like it feels like it goes back to family and community right like none of those things would have happened if you know my family and my community wasn't there to also help take care of us in that way and um and just like a lot of moving parts and a lot of trusting that um yeah that all of that was going to work out and we had a friend with us a friend of a friend who was going to go with us who works in that area um and so it was just a lot like <laughs> just to say the least it was a lot and I remember when we got to the top, I just collapsed 
and started crying and I couldn't believe we were there and just like taking in the views um and then Popo next door was like you know blowing some smoke and I was like oh my god like I can't believe I'm here (laughs) as Montserrat processes the significance of her summit I asked her about the emotional heaviness she felt in the days leading up to the expedition. Yeah, um, I think that I, I like to keep, like, especially with my family, um, I try to keep um, my heart open and just, you know, I want to genuinely believe that there was no malintention there. Like, you know, I think like I talked about it in the article, but like, yeah, my uncle was like supposed to help give us data and like maps and all this stuff. And he was just like in his own world and didn't really help. Um, and I was sad. Like I was genuinely sad because he is someone that I um, look up to a lot. And um, yeah, I think just feeling that disappointment of the lack of support um, and and you know, I I think that, you know, especially with my dad, like, um, I think that there, there, there's genuine, like, concern, you know, for safety, for well-being, um, and at the same time, like, my family still doesn't really understand what I do, nor they, like, see what I do as a, as a profession, um, and I remember, at one point we were loading up our packs and we we're just packing up. And again, my grandma was there the whole time. She was just sitting there like in the living room, watching me and Adi pack. And she's like, man, you guys have a lot of stuff. She's like, your backpacks are so heavy and all this stuff. And Adi at one point is like, Monza does this for like 25 days. And, and like, not only does she do it, but like she takes care of other people while doing it like kids. And, and, you know, to have like my best friend just, just be like, Hey, like you're, you know, like this isn't, this isn't something that is out of her capacity to my family. You know, I think it was, um, it was something that I will never forget. Um, and I remember my grandma just kind of thinking and being like, wait, so you just carry backpacks like this all the time. And I'm like, yeah, grandma, like I do. (laughs) Um, and to, to, to fast forward though, you know, I think it's been a few years of just like having conversations with them and, and teaching and having, you know, just like them understanding. Cause for a while I thought I was like a tourist guide and I was like, no, like there's outdoor education, like, and having to explain to them like why I worked at an outdoor education school and like an outdoor education program and working with youth. Um, cause I did a lot of youth outdoor education work. And so, um, when Escaladora came out, um, it, it has Spanish um, subtitles and um, my aunties got together and watched it with my grandmother and my grandma just like cried, you know, she cried because she got to see a part of my world that she would never be able to see. Um, and not only that, but she got to see the reason why I do the work that I do. Um, and I think that that helps you know, explain a little bit more about my life and the things that make me happy um, and give context to my family for things that they don't, you know, fully understand. And I think it's been creating a little bit more support, at least on my end, that I feel from them for the work that I do. Um, 
and not only support, but like understanding and genuine interest. And, um, you know, like I have my auntie, like trying to get me to do like a, like a, like a rescue skills share for people who do like animal rescue because she's she has like an animal rescue out of her house and she's like yeah sometimes people throw like puppies and drainages and like in sewers she's like I want you to come teach us so that we can recover like these animals and then she like wants me to do brown girls climb in Mexico and she was like I know so many young girls who need to go through a climbing program and I'm just like yeah do you like like I'm getting there trust me like if I could multiply myself and I had endless amount of money and time like I would be at the disposal of my community 24 7 um but yeah I think it's just it started has started to change a lot of um their understanding and relationship to me and and the things that I that make me happy and it makes me happy that there is more understanding In many ways, Montserrat's expedition to Ixtasiwat was not simply about climbing a mountain she had long admired. Instead, Ixtasiwat, the mountain herself, became a space and place for Montserrat to begin having conversations that brought her family to a place of understanding and genuine interest in her life's work. As we close out, Montserrat begins to share how rock climbing has brought healing into her life. I think that there's a lot there, right? There is the um generational connection to climbing um because that original question was coupled with that of with my dad and I think and also like with my uncle and um you know my aunties also went out and would camp with them and different things like that um but I think that you know there's that generational connection side to things there's also the fact that Isa Siwat um, was a site for ceremony, you know, for Mexica people, for our, for other Nahuatl people in the central, um, Mexico area. And there's also like that ancestral connection to, to that mountain and, and how sacred they are for ceremonies. Um, and I would say then the, the third one, which is probably the biggest one for me is, um, the healing that it's brought to me in just feeling, at home in my body. And I say that a lot um, when I talk about climbing. Um, you know, for a really long time, I felt really disconnected from my body, um, carrying a lot of trauma um, and, and just not feeling at home in my body, feeling like I was a stranger in this vessel um, and not feeling confident in my skin or just loving myself, you know, loving every part of my body. And um, when I started climbing, it was this moment of just having to be one, like your mind and your body working together. And when they are constantly at war, when you're maybe criticizing your body or not being nice to yourself or giving yourself, you know, good positive talks um, and climbing radically changed that for me. Because when I was climbing, if I was not being kind to myself and I was not connected to my body and I was not breathing and I was not being present and I was not being aware, um, climbing just didn't work. I couldn't climb. Um, and so climbing, I've, and I've said this a lot, you know, it, it brought me home to my body and it brought me back to that oneness of just 
being able to feel my toes and be present like um you know I can share like you know um for myself like I I I dissociated a lot um like that was a really big coping mechanism in my life um and and climbing doesn't allow you to dissociate like you can't do that and so I feel like climbing actively makes me be present um and works and it helps me exercise that muscle of being present when I've coped with my life so much with being dissociated. I don't think that I came into climbing thinking, oh, climbing is going to be something that's going to help me heal. Like I just, I, I got exposed to climbing in my college program as an outdoor trip leader. Um, and I was turned off by the culture, didn't want to be part of it. Um, and then when I moved to Colorado, um, my friend Mia um, who was uh, a teaching fellow with me at the school, um, also liked climbing. And she started getting me more back into the gym. And it was then that I was like, okay, like maybe I'll get more into climbing. And I bought my first rope and I did my first multi-pitch. And then I sport led for like a week and I didn't like sport leading. And then I started leading trad and once I started leading trad and was leading trad in Estes where I was getting to really beautiful views, it was that I think like that was a pivotal moment when I found my sweet spot in climbing that I was like, yes, th- this is why I want to climb. This is how I want to feel when I'm climbing and this is what I want to do. In Escaladora, a short film by Outdoor Research, Montserrat highlights her mother's community activism and the way it influenced her to think about how she shows up for community. So I asked Montserrat to share the top three values that she developed as a result of that upbringing. Um, yeah, I would say I think the first one is like collective liberation. Um, you know, my mom, I, even, even though she didn't call it this, you know, for her was always about how our struggles are interwoven with each other's struggles and growing up in the South, um, you know, in a lot of Black liberation movement spaces, um, sort of building that connection, right? Like how do we as displaced people, um, undocumented communities, you know, how do they all connect back to what's happening in like the Southern part of our country? Um, and this like living legacy, right, of, of just Black liberation work and movements in the spaces. Um, and, you know, to what we now call intersectionality, um, which was also coined by um, a Black woman. And just really sort of, yeah, thank you. I always forget. I know Crenshaw is her last name. I always forget her first name. Um, but, you know, with, with my mom, it was all about how do we connect our liberation movements to others? Um, and that's something that I feel like she often um, talked about, but not in this way of her necessarily like understanding, you know, like this term that was coined, um, but rather something that she understood to be part of like our, st- our strategy for like liberation work. And I would say the second one is definitely like trust right? And, and trusting to show up. One is trusting that your community will shop for you. And two is that you're, there's a lot of, your word carries a lot. And, 
if you choose to um how you choose to shop for your community really matters and um i think that from an early age i learned a lot about the value of community and the community is nothing without trust um and how we just yeah depend and love on each other like this like ecosystem um of folks just working together um and it definitely takes a lot of trust and i would say lastly um you know i could think a lot about integrity and, and and doing the right thing my my mom has always been super critical you know of of the people who say they're about the people but they're not really about the people um and she has always taught me you know that i need to do the right thing even when people are not watching me even when i think that it may not matter in like you know in that time like if i make this decision or don't make this decision she's maybe understand that every decision that i make has an impact and it has ripple effects and my community is always watching and so um you know how do i always live by the values that she's taught me that my community has taught me so that um yeah so that i show up in the best way Montserrat's values, those that she learned from her mother and community, act as a compass that help her navigate all aspects of her life. I absolutely see this at play with the types of community efforts she has chosen to support. Most recently, Montserrat has partnered with Armadillos, a volunteer search and rescue team based on the U.S.-Mexico border. I asked Montserrat to expand on the work being done by Armadillos and how she's using her skills as a rock climber and educator to support their efforts. Yeah, um, the people at Armadillos are some special type of human beings. They are doing really heavy work um, that is underfunded um, and obviously not seen. And, you know, I think that that, it doesn't really matter. I think that's, it goes back to like, my mom just being like, yeah, like, are you doing this work for you? Or are you doing this work for the community? Um, but I say a lot of things that aren't um, uplifted or seen by most people to say that it is work that is being done in the background that people don't understand how important it is. Um, so Armadillos is an autonomous, all-volunteer search and rescue group um, for migrants specifically. Um, so they travel on both sides of the border um, searching for folks, um, retracing steps, um, identifying um, like belongings to help identify bodies. Um, they mark um, places where they find remains and work with local authorities to recover those remains and get them to their families. Um, they're doing support work at the border, direct um, mutual aid and they work with other organizations um, across the different borders, you know, all the way from Texas, Nuevo Mexico, um, Arizona, California. Um, and they work a lot collaboratively across different organizations and um, collectives, you know, that, um, yeah, that are doing a lot of different work for um, the femicidias, the, sorry, the femicidios, um, on the Mexico side of things and a lot of the kidnappings and missing um, folks uh, due to multiple, you know, um, 
reasons, but a lot of it because of high cartel activity and military um, activity. And so they're doing really heavy work, um, you know, and they have their like, you know, they're being um, harassed by border patrol, you know, um, harassed by cartels on the Mexico side, um, dealing with vigilantes and, um, you know, police. And it's just, I don't think people understand the amount of hardships they go to just to do the work that they're doing and then have to go do the work that they're doing. Um, and they, yeah, that's why I say they're like a special type of human beings um, because the work that they're doing, it's that a lot of other folks do, especially when they're doing border relief and mutual aid work. Um, it's really heavy work and it takes, it, it takes a lot out of you. Um, so yeah, I say that to say that um, we were doing a Skillshare's um, share out and bringing in some more technical rock climbing skills to the group um, and was out there, did two virtual sessions and um, myself and my partner and um, two volunteers from um, Brown Girls Climb who are local there in the um, San Diego area um, helped out and we ran um, about uh, like a half a day, not even a half a day, like a couple hours on Friday just to get together and do gear setup and stuff and then um, instruction all day on Saturday and Sunday was supposed to be like a half day but it felt like a full day um, yeah and, and gonna going going to go back um, in the fall at least planning to to bring more kind of an understanding also any of the money that is donated to them is like you said also shared any extra funds are shared with other volunteer-based rescue groups in Mexico or even on this side of the border right and a lot of this is also going to like getting satellite phones, water, gasoline, food, um, because they spend long stretches of time in the desert, just hiking and looking for remains of people. I mean, I, when you talk about people who are doing work for community, um, Armadillos is, is the people that I think about, you know, um, they, I mean, everyone in their group, like, they're, you know, they're connected to the community. They are community, like, um, like my mom would say, son pueblo, you know, they're, they're, they're from, they're people from the people. Um, and they're doing this work because they, it's things that has impacted their families. Um, you know, they care about this work genuinely because of community. Um, you know, they volunteer their time, their resources. I mean, these folks, you know, they, they work, like, for example, um, Cesar and Alex, who helped start the, who, founded the, the collective, um, you know, they work during the day, like a typical, like, you know, day job, um, doing um, repair and like maintenance work and different stuff like that, plumbing. Um, and then in the evenings, whatever calls or things that they need to do to prep. And then the weekends that they spend volunteering and, you know, like, like I, I can tell like they're, you know, they're working class folks who are volunteering their time and I can tell they're tired, like, you know, being there with them, um, you know, I, because I care about them, because I love them, you know, I am genuinely concerned for our communities because so many, it's it's typically, and this is something that um, we had written about with some, the Broncos Climb Post recently, but it's like, typically the folks who are enduring the most or the most marginalized who are doing the most for community. 
Um, and, you know, I worry about our community. I worry about self, like our self, self-care, our, our preservation, our self-preservation. Like, how are we um, moving forward with just making sure that we're around for the future, right? And that we're not just in this like survival mode. Um, but yeah. yeah. Because not only is it their, you know, their time and their energy and the psychic toll that I'm sure it takes on, on just the spiritual level, but also the fact that I'm sure that they're probably putting some of their own money into this too. I think that is so common within our community, like to do the work that we truly want to do for community. Sometimes we have to fund it ourselves too. Yeah. I will say, um, with when we were fundraising the money to go down there, um, my mom's group, which is a collective of mostly undocumented people in Raleigh, um, you know, they gave us the highest donation of money. They gave us $500. Um, and I'm like, how is it possible that a collective of undocumented folks are giving me like this collective, this other collective, like the highest amount of donated money um, and I'm just trying to get rock climbers to realize like, hey, like rock climbing isn't just about climbing. And this is a way that you can actually show up for community. Um, and I'm like, yeah, it's always the folks that are um, enduring the most and caring the most who are doing the most for community. And and yeah, that that's like very clear to me most all the time. <laughs> If you would like to support Almadillos and their recovery efforts in the deserts of Arizona and California, you can find their information in the podcast show notes. Please remember that any amount helps them sustain this important work. I know we've talked about really heavy stuff, so we're going to end on a lighter note. Are you ready? Yes. All right. So fun five. Number one. What are your favorite three things in nature and what does it tell us about you? Okay, um, well, first, I really like water, um, any type of water. Um, I think maybe it's like a Scorpio thing. I'm not really sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love being near the water. It's calming. Um, it's beautiful. Even if I can just put my feet in the water, um, it makes me happy. And I would say um, like a beautiful view, like regardless of where I am, like I don't need to be on top of the mountain. Like I can just be like watching the sunset or watching the sunrise. Um, as long as I'm watching something beautiful in nature happening, like it, it, like there's been times where I've watched a sunrise and I've wanted to cry, like genuinely like tear up. Um, and let's see, uh, another thing in nature that I like, oh man, it's so hard. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily something in nature that I like in this. I don't know if this answers the question, but when I'm rock climbing, I really love to like put my face on the rock and just like feel the cold of the rock and just like say thank you to the rock for letting me climb. Um, I think those are some of my favorite memories in nature. Awesome. Number two, which of your ancestors would you most like to meet? Oh my God, this is such a hard question. Um, but I think that I would like to meet um, my great grandmother, Amparo. Um, she is my mom's mom. Um, yeah. Number three, how would you like to spend your elder years? <laughs> 
Uh, when I saw this question, I made me laugh because um, one time I was traveling to Mexico with my partner Alonso and we were in Tequila and we saw this like older couple sitting on a little bench and one of them was reading the newspaper and the other one was feeding the birds. And we turned around and we said that when we get older, that that's how we want to spend our days is just sitting on a bench reading and feeding the birds. And I think that's like something to aspire to do in my life. I like that. Number four. So if you could give all human beings one virtue, which would you choose and why? Empathy. Like to feel empathy, to feel like deep empathy. Um, I think that the world would be a much better place if we could all feel what other people are feeling and understand where they're coming from. Um, I think that it would um, help our hearts grow bigger and be more understanding, understanding, um, caring, and thoughtful people. I completely agree. And the last one, what space and place most dramatic, most dramatically influenced your life? Um, I would say uh, my grandmother's um, rooftop. Um, I would see Istasiwat from my grandma's rooftop a lot. Um, and my grandma has a lot of little plants up there. And I would love to just go up there and write um, and just look at everything around me um and I love her house her home feels really safe really calming um I've never had bad like dreams or nightmares when I've been in her home ever um so I would say like her rooftop slash my grandma's house that sounds like such a protected and sacred space mm-hmm yeah all right. So where can our listeners find you and how can they be of service to you and all the different projects that I know you're involved in? Yeah, I would say um, I want to plug in the Brown Girls Climb Instagram, Facebook. Um, you know, a lot of the work that I'm doing is, is through BGC. Um, and I would say if folks want to get connected to me um, directly as well, um, I sometimes don't post things on my social media. Like I go through different like you know, waves of like being like, okay, I'm going to use my social media to like push the things that I'm doing in community. And sometimes I'm just like doing those things like low key and like don't want to blast it all over social media. And anyways, I say all that to say people can connect with me if they want to um, on Instagram, um, Outdoor Chingona. Um, And sometimes I will give you a fair warning that it could just be videos of dogs and chickens and ducks and babies. And sometimes (laughs) it can be like super serious things that are going down the community. And it just all depends on my mental space and capacity. (laughs) What parting words would you like to share with our listeners to help them really start to center intention, healing and purpose in their life? I think it's really important for us to remember, um, that healing isn't linear, healing isn't a destination. It's not like a place where you're suddenly arrived to. Um, And that healing looks different for all of us. And it's really important um, for us to connect back to our ancestors and all of our ancestors, not just the ones that we pick and choose to connect to. But, um, you know, and I say that because I, I think I talked to you about um, feeling like I needed to really sit down and like root myself in 
my Indigenous like family and lineage to feel ready to dive into um, sort of the, the other side of that, right? Like the, the colonization that, it, that, that happened in my own family, like the traumas around my own family. And um, I say that to say like, you know, we need to know where we come from in, in holistically, like in, in the entirety of our lineage, um, because that is where a lot of healing is going to happen is within our own families, within ourselves. Um, and, you know, I just think that a lot of times we romanticize what healing looks like. We think that healing needs to look like this or that. And that once we arrive to this place, like we've somehow reached like a level, like, I don't know, you get like a gold star or something. Um, and it's, it's a never ending journey and it's, it's painful. I think that people often think that healing looks like a really beautiful, like, oh man, like I'll be able to, uh, talk about this thing without crying or I'll be able to you know um, feel okay about treating myself to a massage you know and and the reality is is that healing is ugly and painful and it's 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 looking at a lot of darkness in yourself um, and and reminding yourself at the end of the day that you are a human being um, that is a product of the conditions around you. And I think that one of the hardest things it's been for me is um, not blaming my parents, you know, not blaming my parents for the things that they passed on to me because they didn't know they were passing those things on to me, right? Um, and feeling like I can hold multiple truths around boundaries and real life trauma real effects that are still that I'm still working through in my adulthood um as well as saying I love them they're still my parents they gave me life they made me who I am today um and I think it's just reminding myself that we are all human beings at the end of the day who are trying to find our life's purpose and who are trying to be better human beings and um you know reminding ourselves of that I have to remind myself of that every day I just want to thank you so much for your time for your energy for all that you do for our community and you know as you've been telling your story there's a quote by Gloria Saldúa that kept coming to mind um caminante no hay puentes se hace puentes al andar and which briefly kind of interprets to Voyager, there are no bridges, one builds them as one walks. And I just see you as a bridge builder and through rock climbing, through danza, which we didn't get to talk about, but <laughs> <laughs> through your activism, through teaching, through poetry, I just, I see you constantly building these bridges that bring us to a closer understanding of ourselves and of our community. And so thank you so much for, for everything that you do. Thank you. You're very kind. Um, yeah, I think like um, I think a lot about women of color and women of color being bridges, you know, that's that's how we build a new world. I don't know about you all, but after listening to Montserrat's beautiful storytelling, I know that in the next couple of weeks, I'll still be processing some of the things that came up for me. 
I want to leave you with three tools inspired by Montserrat's story. May they help you journey with more intention, purpose, and healing in your life. Number one, identify your top three to five values. For Montserrat, the values of collective liberation, trust, and integrity are the compass that guide her North Star and consequently her contributions to the world. What are yours? Number two, discovering yourself. What are your superpowers, your skills, your talents, your passions? As Montserrat shared the amazing work she is doing with Armadillos, I couldn't help but think about how her story comes full circle. As I mentioned before, in the North Face version of her poem, she writes that rock climbing doesn't always translate to her community. Yet, it's her skills as a rock climber and outdoor educator that are allowing her to contribute to the training and safety of Armadillos, a heroic group of volunteers on the U.S.-Mexico border. And number three, learn to understand your body and emotions. As Montserrat shared in this episode, healing isn't linear. The healing process looks and feels differently for each of us, so be kind to yourself. Remember that trauma creates disconnectedness in our physical, emotional, and spiritual body. What can you do in the next couple of weeks to start understanding your body and emotions? For Montserrat, it's rock climbing, danza, and writing. For me, it's hiking, yoga, and writing. What does it look like for you? Montserrat and I hope that these tools will bring you one step closer to finding your healing nature. To follow Montserrat on Instagram, go to at Outdoor Chingona and also follow at Brown Girls Climb. In the podcast show notes, you will find the information to Armadillos, Brown Girls Climb, the North Face video, Escaladora by Outdoor Research, a couple of books mentioned, and the Nahua romance story between Ixtasiwat and Popol. Thank you all so much for sticking with us through the entire episode. If you resonated with the storytelling, I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review if you're so inclined. We are streamed on all major platforms, so follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. To remain connected, please follow us on Instagram at underscore your healing nature. Feel free to DM me or email me at info at yourhealingnature.com. Lastly, I'd love for this podcast to be as collaborative as possible. Therefore, BIPOC community, if there's a topic, theme, or guest you'd love to hear from as it relates to healing trauma in the outdoors or rethinking the outdoors, please let me know. Mil gracias. Until next time, keep walking in sunshine. on the moon